Hello, and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing trauma-informed care, many trauma-specific interventions, a lot of different symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder or developmental trauma and different things like that, and I'm also going to be introducing the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids, Michigan. So, to begin, we should probably talk about what trauma-informed care is. So, trauma-informed care is taking the science that we know about trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, the neurobiology of the brain, how things work, and sort of viewing each person that comes into our office through that lens to assess uh, if trauma-informed or trauma-specific interventions are necessary and also just using it as a best practice for crisis de-escalation, appropriate referrals, and also just sometimes in a basic way, a little bit of psychoeducation within talk therapy to help a person understand a little bit more about their biology and what is possibly going on when certain things occur. Um, A lot of people, of course, When you're in a situation, maybe not even a traumatizing situation, but recently somebody told me when they get around somebody through their work situation, a certain type of work client, they start uh, feeling shortness of breath and heart beating, and they haven't really reported any significant traumas in their life. Well, uh, it seems to be, uh, besides one thing they could report, which they said was not a trauma, which was getting introduced to somebody and fumbling over their words and feeling like an idiot. And then ever since then, they got around this type of person at their workplace, meaning like a certain type of client of theirs, and they got nervous, they became nervous and sweaty and all that. And so I was trying to explain to them just on a biological basis that it seems that their nervous system had reacted highly uh, during the first time that this had happened, which it connected to some of their narrative beliefs about being prepared and being competent uh, and I, this was just in a short period of time, and that they may want to seek some trauma-specific interventions uh, for this, such as some mind-body therapies, just because it seems to be the quickest way to it, as this person was a very high-performing individual, and they were very logical, and they kept saying, I know this isn't logical, but every time I get around this person, I feel like I can't perform my job. So it can be as basic as that to as complicated as working with somebody with developmental trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder and understanding and having to help them on many different levels uh, with understanding what is going on and helping them de-escalate, helping them ground so that we can even do any type of counseling work. So we need to understand with trauma-informed care, we understand that the under, we need to understand trauma and the awareness of the impact it can have across different settings, services, and populations. It's going to be somewhat new language for people. So how do we put it into culturally appropriate language for where we're working and who we're working with? We have to view the trauma through a cultural and ecological lens and recognize the context plays a significant role in how people actually perceive or process traumatic events, uh, whether this is acute or chronic. So Again, it's it's new. We have to honor the culture we're treating people in and find ways to say it that are not overwhelming. Um, I was recently listening to a talk by Scott Miller that he gave at the 2017 Evolution of Psychotherapy where he was talking about 
how a lot of clients dropped out of treatment early in, in counseling. And part of this seemed to be due to the trend of counselors sort of coming in and obliterating people's worldview, um, especially with cognitive behavioral therapy coming in and sort of saying, oh, it's just thoughts and core beliefs and emotions. And the person's just not ready for that language and felt offended or felt misheard or, you know, especially when a person has a spiritual belief system, uh, feeling attacked, um, that, and the counselors being a little rigid on that instead of figuring out where that person's coming from. And so I think trauma-informed care, really, we really have to find out what's going on and how best to inform them about the nervous system and the effects of certain events on their nervous system in a way that's culturally appropriate. Um, we need to make sure we are anticipating and avoiding institutional processes and practices by ourselves or counselors that we know that may re-traumatize people who already have histories of trauma. So that can be just widespread. I mean, I've heard a lot of it, I mean, not to pick on inpatient hospitals, but it's an obvious thing. You know, you have to remove somebody's autonomy for their safety, and then you've got to maintain some sort of cultural milieu in a hospital, and that may uh, remind somebody of prison, or that may remind somebody of being in an authoritarian family structure, and who knows, and, and at the same time, we have to maintain order. So there's a very um, difficult tension there uh, to honor each individual while also tailoring it to their their personality and their cultural background. Uh, and it upholds the importance of client participation in the development, delivery, and evaluation of services, meaning that we want to make sure that we are informing the client of what we're doing and how we're doing it and why. So that's, of course, basic therapy stuff that we should be doing anyway. But with trauma-informed model, it's very uh, – it's got a lot of elements of strength-based, a lot of elements of client-centered, and it's very much applying a science in a – a way that's digestible for individuals. And so, obviously, trauma-informed care is not just in counseling. It, it's also, you know, it can you can apply this to all types of medicine. You can apply trauma-informed approaches to education. And I think just as a human species, understanding how we react to that and educating people so that they don't get trapped in some sort of narrative that's negative and self-reinforcing in some way that uh, inhibits them or makes things worse is important. Uh, and I believe it unlocks a lot of guilt and shame and brings forth a lot of understanding and, and really even compassion. Um, because I, I know we brought up this book a lot, but the body keeps a score. If I know that my body's reacting to something because it's intelligent and it sees it as a threat and it's trying to keep me alive, I'm much more likely to stop blaming myself the emotional turmoil for blaming myself for reacting a certain way in a situation. And with a softer approach, I may be able to eventually change the way I react in a certain situation. So um, let's, we're going to get into trauma specific interventions, but I'm just going to go right now and talk about why this is important to me. So Basically, if you've been following this podcast, episode one, I moved from Phoenix, Arizona to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And before that, I had been living in Chicago, which is where I got my master's degree and started practicing there at first. Um, 
as well. And when I moved to Grand Rapids, I found there were some excellent EMDR clinicians, uh, and they were kind of spread out here and there. Uh, but the problem was there wasn't that many of them. And then furthermore, I, I didn't find as much trauma-informed stuff as I thought I might. I did find some trauma-focused CBT models going on, but I found a lot of old school counseling going on in Grand Rapids. And I think, you know, any kind of counseling works. Remember episode three, it does work. But there's a certain cultural judgment that can come around in certain uh, places, depending on the cultural attitudes and belief systems of the people that live there, that can creep their way into certain therapies. And in my opinion, in some cases, I've met amazing therapists in Grand Rapids. So, Grand Rapids, I love you. This is not a hit on you. Um, found amazing colleagues and friends and people I would refer my own family to there. Uh, but I did find a trend of, uh, this was self-reported mostly by clients and people I, I ran into as friends and colleagues, was that there is still a, a cultural attitude in Grand Rapids that's a bit more disconnected mind and body, much more focused on brain and thoughts, and even tied into belief systems that are heavy on guilt and judgment. And so it's interesting. It's it's all about how you use it. You could utilize anything for good or evil or whatever you want to call it. You can utilize EMDR in a very unethical way, but you can also use CBT in a way that reinforces your uh, personal judgments against people. You can use behaviorism and different behavioral modification therapies in a way that belittles clients and reinforces some sort of larger cultural narrative that you grew up in. And it's like, you know, if, you've, if you're a fish and you've been swimming in this water the whole time, you don't know that there's, you know, and you're in a lake, you don't know that there might be salt water because that, there's no river connecting it. So, there, there was a bit of some cultural stuff I wasn't a big fan of um, in Grand Rapids, and I saw it affecting clients, especially when I got clients who called and said something like, this is a paraphrase, but I had sexual trauma, and I talked to my longtime therapist about it, and they said, honestly, the best thing to do is compartmentalize it and don't think about it. And other ones who just said, I can't help you with that. You should go see this guy, me, meaning me. Uh, I've got multiple referrals like that. And I just thought, what are we doing as a profession? I, I get that we need to have a niche. And so therefore making an appropriate referral, I give that person, you know, points for referring, but the way they did it wasn't great because of the way the client reported it to me. And I wouldn't mind being an adjunct therapist is doing EMDR and having somebody keep their core talk therapist if they've got that relationship because we know the relationship heals. But I'm thinking like, why? where is our education? Where? Why aren't we following what's coming out in the literature and the research? And as counselors, I think we have an important duty uh, to help protect our clients, you know, do no harm. Well, it is harmful to utilize a judgmental attitude towards a client uh, because of your personal background, whether that be some sort of culture or religious preference or um, attitude. Uh, and so I think the trauma-informed care approach and the trauma-informed counseling approach really makes us take a look at ourselves and what is our lens and opening it up to just people in general and not my cultural viewpoint.
and just being aware of my cultural viewpoint. And I think I was acutely aware of my cultural viewpoint, having lived in two major cities in two different parts of the country, opened me up to different ideas. And obviously, I've still got blind spots. I'm not trying to just say negative stuff here. But um, it was also eye-opening to move to Michigan where I grew up and see how different I didn't realize. Well, it was also a different part of Michigan. I grew up in. I grew up near a university. I grew up near Michigan State University right down the road. So I did have some different cultural viewpoints already uh, about where I grew up. And then uh, moving to Grand Rapids was different. Now, that being said, I've, again, met amazing clinicians in Grand Rapids, amazing practitioners everywhere. And it just all depends on where you go. I guess the trouble is being a client I don't, or a consumer, I don't know where to go. I don't know what doctors are trauma-informed. I don't know what psychiatrists are trauma-informed. I don't know what therapists are trauma-informed. I don't know where am I supposed to go. And so essentially after, you know, I made a Word document with EMDR therapists that I had emailed or talked to that I knew had at least gone through level two of the EMDR certification and different ones who actually had trauma-informed certificates, I started thinking, well, these people are just kind of spread out and it's not really well advertised. And I'm sure, and of course, all of them, uh, the ones that I put on my list were full. And even all the really good talk therapists that I met that I thought were fantastic, amazing, psychodynamic talk therapists that I know I've interviewed a few on this podcast already. Just amazing therapists in Grand Rapids doing men's work and women's work and couples work. Just, they were all full. And so I'm thinking, good grief, like what is what is happening? Like wh- we need to do something about this, especially for the trauma-informed um, part of this. So essentially, I, I've been working at this place called Health for Life Grand Rapids that I helped start with my wife. And um, I've decided uh, it's coming soon. We'll see what, uh, it'll be on the internet by the time this episode releases. But this year, 2019, I'm going to open up what's called the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids. And uh, that's going to be a subdivision of Health for Life Grand Rapids. So it'll be on our website, healthforlifegr.com forward slash trauma-informed counseling center or trauma dash informed dash counseling or whatever you'll find it and then we'll have a link somewhere on the homepage, and it's going to be a wing of it and basically i'm aiming to have multiple counselors uh who specialize in the latest empirically proven uh clinical therapies to treat trauma like ptsd and other trauma-induced issues like uh depression, anxiety, relationship difficulties, whatever's going on from the full gamut from complete post-traumatic stress to exposure to trauma and some of the validated empirically proven techniques that we're going to utilize um, and some which are still being researched, of course, trauma-specific interventions are going to be EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. I have a whole episode on that. I believe it's 13. Somatic experiencing therapy, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, what I'm calling trauma-sensitive mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, because I'll get into this later, but I can I can see where some mindfulness interventions actually could lead to further dissociation, uh, oddly enough, which I'll get into that. So, And then eventually I'd love to bring in the neurosequential model and just any other modes of... Um, healing that are uh, able to be studied and researched and at least pointing towards validation. 
Um, and so basically at the place in Grand Rapids, the trauma-informed counseling center of Grand Rapids, I am requiring that all of the counselors be um, trauma-informed. And in fact, all our practitioners be trauma-informed and that they at least know one trauma-specific intervention and have been trained extensively to the point where they either have a certificate or something like that. And it's not just like, oh, I went to a webinar one time and I learned about EMDR. No, you have to have gone to the EMDR and gone through the consultation and gone through level two and gone through the consultation. And I'm going to be starting to get um, even more than my 40 hours I've done post part two on that so I can help with that. And basically, we want I want everyone to have the advanced training and the education. I'm going to try to help provide that along with continuing education uh, to help anyone in Grand Rapids in the whole area. And eventually, maybe people from outside the area who are looking for help maybe can come in for an intensive. I'm still looking into the details of that. Right now, we can, of course, take insurance and do weekly appointments or even twice a week, depending on the situation, for short term um, and long term. And eventually, uh, you know, if people from outside the area, if there's a demand, we'll have to look into that. And so just people suffering from trauma and trauma-related symptoms. And, you know, um, for years, like I've said, people have suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic events, car accidents, assault, relationship, devastation, um, abuse, neglect from childhood or even in adulthood, sudden job loss, uh, loss of a loved one. And they didn't have faith in their counselor or therapy because they felt like sometimes their therapist didn't understand like why they felt physically the way they did and the therapist could empathize and the therapist could help them and talk through the narrative but maybe the therapist was not versed in the mind body connection and uh how this affects the brain and so a lot of people found that many times their symptoms and difficulties were still plaguing them even if they were quote thinking right about a past incident and we're trying to, quote, move on or become resilient. So let's talk a little bit more about this. Uh, Trauma-informed approach and trauma-specific interventions. So thanks to brain and counseling research on advanced counseling techniques and the field of interpersonal neurobiology, we now understand the effects of traumatic experiences often take hold in our muscle memory, nervous system, and the subconscious mind. Uh, thus, people who have suffered from traumatic events in their lives often continue to be troubled by physical symptoms, whether it be intense anxiety or panic attacks that seem to originate sometimes out of nowhere, but sometimes with stimuli that is related or triggering. Um, they are, feel irritated and anger. They, it's hard to cool down or feeling constantly on edge or having a crying spell that doesn't seem to have ties with the current situation in their lives. Nightmares insomnia, upset stomach, and many more symptoms. So we've now understood that using an integrated approach of trauma-informed specific techniques in counseling that address both thoughts and the associated physical feelings, along with other forms um, of understanding the physical, can have positive long-term and lasting effects that are much more consistent uh, than treating the body alone or treating just the mind by itself. So... Basically, I'm hoping, you know, all of these trauma-specific interventions, pretty much except for maybe, I guess, trauma-focused CBT and trauma 
and acceptance and commitment are mostly about mind-body. And, and I'm going to make sure that the practitioners who do those two will also tie in some mind-body stuff. So we're trying to treat the nervous system, which is just an extension of the brain. And, you know, it's hard to say, you know, the outcomes are amazing for EMDR. I'll get into that. But it also depends on many of the things like having the right clinician. So that's why I'm bringing on multiple people from different backgrounds, different faith backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds to try to make sure that we have a place where people can find someone that fits how they feel culturally, but is also bringing them some advanced skills to um, not just heal like in terms of symptoms, but kind of transform to the point where trauma isn't a big part of their life anymore. And they can get back to living and get back to their community and, and doing what they love. And we know this already is that uh, a lot of times if you treat, if the trauma is the root cause and it's not some sort of physical abnormality, uh, you can avoid a lot of, I don't know, treatments that only focus on the physical or medications that only treat the symptoms of maybe depression when it was caused by a trauma. And not that those things aren't useful. We should always get a consultation, but we know that counseling is very effective. We can go back to episode three on that. And that uh, basically in basically an analysis of 10,000 meta study or a meta analysis of 10,000 studies, 79 to 80% of people felt better after just a short period of counseling and that the effects were long-term and there's a bunch more things on that in episode three. So I'm just going to talk about trauma as a whole and more about why we're doing this. So let's talk about what is the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids? It was a counseling center created out of a need for high-quality, empirically proven trauma-specific counseling interventions and a concentration of trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive care in Grand Rapids. So we are offering specialized counseling to those who have suffered traumatic events in their lives, and we'll work with people to gain symptom relief that doesn't uh, often come sometimes when you've got a trauma in your life and you're, you're not sure what to do and talk therapy isn't cutting it. So we're going to use the cutting edge of a bunch of trauma-specific interventions, which are mostly mind-body. And essentially, you know, we also will work with anybody, even if you haven't had trauma, everyone has gone through higher education and we all do talk therapy as well. It's just that that happens to be our niche. And so um, we will work with people that have not identified having trauma. Although I think everyone's had terrible things happen to them or even mildly terrible things happen to them that have shaped their perspective in some way, even subconsciously. So we want to define trauma-specific interventions. And these are interventions that have been created and studied and researched from a trauma lens and are meant to help people who have experienced trauma, such as EMDR, somatic experiencing therapy, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and more. So within these therapies, we understand and want to emphasize 
and recognize the diverse needs of our clients. We need to make them feel respected, informed, and connected, and hopeful about regarding their own recovery. We need to help them understand the interrelation between trauma and whatever they're coming in with, whether it be symptoms of trauma, such as substance abuse, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress. And we want to help them understand these correlations and present them research and information that is valid and so that this may help them drop some of the shame and blame that come a lot of times with different behaviors and symptoms. We want to work in a collaborative way, if applicable, um, with you know their other providers or if they want their family members involved or anything like that. So let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about what is trauma? Have I or someone I know experienced emotional or psychological trauma? So here's what I'll say about that. If you have ever experienced an extremely distressing, disturbing or stressful event that caused you to feel emotionally out of control and or helpless, you may have experienced trauma. After a traumatic event, psychological trauma can cause you to struggle with intrusive thoughts, unbalanced emotions, unwelcome memories, or even flashbacks, or anxiety that doesn't seem to cease. Oftentimes, trauma can also cause you to feel completely numb, disconnected from yourself and others, and with a feeling of mistrust of other people and or organizations or entities. After a traumatic event, it may be impossible to feel fully safe or even to quote-unquote relax. This may be a sign that you've experienced emotional and psychological trauma that may require professional trauma-informed counseling. Uh, It just depends on your situation. Emotional and psychological trauma is the result of extraordinarily stressful events that can shatter your sense of security as well, causing you to feel overwhelmed or helpless or even constantly angry at the world. There's many different things that can come out of it. Many traumatic experiences can involve a threat to life or safety or a perceived threat to your life or safety. Um, but the aftermath of any situation that causes you to feel completely overwhelmed and isolated can result in trauma regardless if it does not involve a threat to physical harm. And that's something we're learning for sure because of many different studies and experiences. In fact, now we're even coming up with vicarious trauma where hearing about trauma can cause some people to have these reactions. Traumatic experiences don't follow a logical or linear structure. They affect your brain and entire nervous system, which is where the body is, and it has almost nothing to do with like what a quote-unquote reasoning. But it's a biological response to a threat that is activated and begins to change your entire life experience. It's basically out of your control until you learn and get help with it learn different methods of dealing with it. So therefore, the objective circumstances that determine whether an event is traumatic or not are really irrelevant, but it's much more your subjective emotional experience and perception of the event than what some sort of outsider or objective party might say. The more devastated, frightened, and helpless you feel during the event, the more likely you are to be traumatized. Some people go through horrific events and show little signs of trauma, while others go through something that they and other people may label as, quote, minor and eventually develop symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. It really just depends on the person. But the symptoms are similar with everyone. Um, Our nervous system and 
biology are not logical entities in how they interpret threats. They are trying to keep us alive and safe at all costs and act subconsciously. Only later on can we start to make sense of it. So what can cause emotional and psychological trauma? Well, this could be, I'm just, I'm just going to go down my list for people that want to learn. One-time events such as an accident, injury, or violent attack, especially if it was unexpected or happened during childhood or during an important developmental milestone. Ongoing relentless stress such as childhood neglect and abuse, battling a life-threatening illness, or, thre- or experiencing traumatic events that occur repeatedly such as domestic violence, bullying, living or working in a war zone, or living in a dangerous neighborhood. Oftentimes, people suffer from trauma symptoms for years and did not realize they had even experienced trauma. Some often overlooked causes of trauma can be the sudden death of someone close to you, uh, the breakup of a significant relationship, a sudden job loss, a seriously just a move to a different geographic region, or a deeply disappointing or humiliating experience, especially if someone was deliberately cruel. Another commonly overlooked trauma can be surgery. Um, so, and, and these are, those are some major ones, but I mean, it could, it, again, it comes down to the person's perception. And how did their body react in the situation? It really may, I mean, I've heard of people almost getting in a car accident and that being uh, more traumatic than when they actually got into a car accident. So it's something about what the nervous system is doing. I'm sorry, there's doors shutting and opening. I'm in a hotel. So recent findings have indicated that viewing many horrific images from man-made or natural disaster through television, social media, and the internet can also overwhelm your nervous system. And this can create traumatic stress or what they call vicarious trauma. At times, this traumatic stress may require trauma-specific interventions to help the person return to a normal state. While the odds are low that your average citizen would be the direct victim of a plane crash, mass shooting, terrorist attack, or natural disaster, thanks to access to modern technology, we now have the ability to know about almost everything happening in the world, or almost every terrible thing, on a large scale, that happens daily on the planet through viewing images or content about this through technology. And some people um, might even eventually be watching hours and hours of this sort of content, which could really overwhelm your nervous system. So I also talk about what are traumatic events. I kind of went through this a little bit, um, but it can be any event that overwhelms or deeply disturbs you uh, psychologically, emotionally, or physically, or witnessing other people or animals experiencing a traumatic event. Um, And so there's so many things we can go through that I'm not going to probably read them all, but here's some immediate impact that can happen after a traumatic event. Um, and they can have long-term debilitating effects if the survivor does not receive effective support to regain stability and safety. So actually, it's important to get immediate intervention if you've gone through a traumatic event because it can actually um, help the symptoms not be prolonged in long-term. So some immediate effects could be recurring nightmares or memories of the event, sleep difficulties, difficulty concentrating, increased anxiety or depressed mood, relationship or job academic difficulties, or just complete emotional shutdown. And those are just things that can happen immediately in terms of shock and other things like that. What can happen to somebody after they suffer from a traumatic event? 
Whatever the source of the traumatic event, trauma can leave its imprint on the brain and the nervous system. For example, recent research studies consistently show that post-traumatic stress disorder is linked to greater activity in the brain areas that process fear and less activation in parts of the prefrontal cortex. Um, so that's where you, more logical uh, formal, formal thoughts are coming from. So even if the trauma you experience does not meet criteria for PTSD, you may still be suffering from similar side effects. It is normal to suffer from traumatic stress after experiencing a traumatic incident or witnessing one. And if after some time you are feeling worse and you are not wanting to, you are not returning to normal, you will want to consider uh, finding a trauma-informed counselor and especially one that knows trauma-specific interventions. So whether or not a traumatic event has directly impacted you, it is normal to feel scared, anxious, uh, unsafe, depressed, and even uncertain about your current circumstances, and especially your future. Following an event, your nervous system has become overwhelmed by what we call the sympathetic response, which includes the following possible elements, fight, flight, or freeze, uh, also collapse. Uh, this normally can happen during the event, and then following the event, um, different things can cause those responses to come back up again and again, or just trigger a large uh, array of intense emotional feelings and physical reactions. Reactions to traumatic events and stress often come and go in waves. For instance, there may be times when you're feeling on edge, anxious, or jumpy, and other times when you feel completely exhausted, numb, or disconnected. Some other normal emotional responses to traumatic stress and events include the following. Shock and disbelief. What happened may not seem real and may take a while to sink in. Stuck on replay. The events may play over and over in your mind, even when you don't want uh, that to be happening. Overwhelming sadness. Your sadness may feel that is without end, quote-unquote, uh, helplessness and loss of control. You may feel out of control and that you are unable to do anything about your situation. Inappropriate guilt. Even when a traumatic event had nothing to do with your control or your fault or whatever, you may feel completely responsible and guilty to the point where it disturbs you. And this could even be if you were a victim of a traumatic event or a crime um, you might still feel guilty for it. Anger and irritability. You may feel angry and irritable most of the day or, or when certain topics come up or certain emotions. Shame. You may feel shame over what has happened or even because of your reactions or thoughts about what happened. It's like a shame trap. It's terrible. Relief. At times, you may feel relief and hope that your life will quote-unquote return to normal but you may then get wrapped back into symptoms because of untreated uh, trauma stress. Some other normal physical symptoms that can be triggered by a traumatic event or traumatic stress include the following, which are shaking uncontrollably, increased heart rate, breathing rapidly, feeling choked up or lump in the throat, upset stomach or churning stomach, feeling faint or dizzy, breaking out in a cold sweat, uh, thoughts are constantly racing, hands trembling. So I just covered a lot of things that can happen following a traumatic event, but there are some even more deeper psychological and other issues that can happen um, if you've actually experienced a traumatic event. So this following part is 
a list of common reactions that people have reported following traumatic events in their lives, some of which correspond to the symptoms of PTSD and some don't. Um, and you, some people might have multiple things going on at once. And there's also the co-occurring with anxiety, depression, co-occurring with substance uh, overuse and other things like that. And if any of that's happening to you, please seek a counselor immediately, which I'll talk about at the end. So here's some major issues that can happen. Um, Post-traumatic stress or trauma can cause these. Changes in how you view the world and yourself. You might have difficulty trusting people. If the traumatic event you suffered was at the hands of another person, you may find it difficult to trust people in general after this. For instance, especially if you had formerly trusted a person who hurt you, this negative event may have you suspecting that other people could betray you, which can lead to anxiety about interactions with other people and even isolation from people. Next, you may believe that the world is extremely dangerous. Immediately following a traumatic event, it is normal to view the environment around you as dangerous. However, as time goes on, if this is not addressed, this belief may start to generalize, causing a person to feel and view non-threatening situations as extremely dangerous as well. For recovery, it is important to understand that while the world can be quite dangerous at times and indefinitely is in multiple geographic locations around the world right now, that other times and other spaces it is relatively safe. Blaming yourself for traumatic events occurring. It is very common to feel inappropriate guilt after something happens to you, and unfortunately, this can lead to intrusive thoughts and negative feelings about yourself. If only I'd left home a few minutes early, if I hadn't worn that outfit, if I had chosen a different day to go to this event, why wasn't I more cautious? So it's easy to use the advantage of hindsight or looking back to see the, quote, mistakes we've made. In reality, we almost certainly are overstating our own responsibility for the traumatic event. That's what most people do that are survivors at first. And as a result, they can feel unnecessary guilt. So it's like a terrible emotion on top of a terrible emotion from what already happened. Um, This can be quite debilitating. It's an unfortunate common effect for people that have survived trauma. Um, Thinking you should have handled the trauma uh, differently. So... Many trauma survivors get stuck in what's called the shoulds. Many survivors keep repeating that they, quote, should have had a different response to the trauma other than fight, flight, freeze, or collapse. According to the research of the way that the brain and body handle the trauma, this idea actually flies in the face of the way the body and nervous system naturally react. We may believe that we could have had a different reaction, but traumas actually overwhelm our system. That's why they're a trauma. Uh, and they overwhelm our nervous system and our brain and our mind and our body. And thus, uh, usually fight, flight, freeze happen or overall feeling of shock that the person that comes over a person. Thus, they could not use their, their, uh, neocortex to bring reasoning and calm judgment into a traumatic situation. So I know that in movies, we fantasize about people in war calmly walking through the lines while bombs are going off and issuing orders. Well, this is a myth. This is a fantasy. Now, uh, I'm certain that generals could do this if they were miles away, but if your life is actually being threatened, uh, you're probably not going to be as calm as some of these actors in war movies. Um, Viewing oneself as weak or inadequate. Following a traumatic event is quite normal to be viewing oneself as less than. Uh, and some people believe that it is their fault that the trauma happened in the first place or that they were, quote, attracted to the situation. 
As with most beliefs that have been distorted by a traumatic event, it is both untrue and debilitating, debilitating to believe any of this. If one continues to believe this, that you're weak or inadequate or you brought this on yourself, you should definitely seek counseling. Self-criticism about your reactions to the traumatic events. In addition to suffering through the traumatic events, survivors sometimes find themselves upset and critical of themselves for being upset in the first place. It is emotionally normal and scientifically valid to experience a variety of seemingly uncontrollable emotions following a traumatic event or shutdown. So a lot of people criticize themselves over something that's completely natural. That's why we need to help people understand this. Re-experiencing the trauma. Replaying the traumatic memory is one part, and in that part, many people find that their mind seems to be on a loop returning over and over to the intrusive and disturbing traumatic memory. It can be very disheartening and depressing not to be able to stop a memory from repeating. It can also be re-traumatizing. It is important to seek professional help if this is happening to you. Nightmares and night terrors. Post-traumatic event, your nervous system has taken a major shock, and so even in one sleep, the brain will continue to often process the event um, in many times in the form of awful nightmares and upsetting dreams. A nightmare may not be replaying the traumatic events, but it may be very stressful with a sense of underlying dread or terror um, for when, when you wake up. A series of nightmares can also contribute to sleeping problems, such as insomnia after in a traumatic event. Traumatic flashback. A flashback can occur when a trauma memory gets triggered and makes a person feel as if the traumatic event is occurring once again. Flashbacks are particularly upsetting and exhausting because they can bring back with them a powerful overflow of emotions and vivid recollections and memories of the traumatic event. So this has definitely uh, been chronicled a lot with war veterans who, if they come back uh, from war and they were around a bombing, it's very difficult for them to be around fireworks and loud noises and things like that as well. Avoiding people, places, and things that are related to the trauma or seem related in theme. Trying not to think about the traumatic event is the top one of these, which is it is logical and normal to want to avoid thinking about the traumatic event. In fact, avoidance is one of the top symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Unfortunately, such avoidance of memory can lead to different types of symptoms such as anxiety and physical tension. With proper therapy and exercises, it can be actually become less painful to remember a traumatic event, and thus one can start to begin to feel less hypervigilant. Um, avoiding people, places, and things related to the traumatic event. In attempts to avoid a triggering memory, survivors often avoid people, places, and things related to such the event, even if they are not directly related, but just remind them of the event. A common example would be a television show that has a plot content similar to what happened in your situation. But sometimes people avoid situations that they would normally enjoy, such as a concert um, or going to the beach, because of the association with the trauma begins to generalize to other situations. A hypervigilant nervous system. Feeling constantly on guard or shut down. Following a traumatic event, most people find their nervous system is in a state of hyperarousal, while others find themselves in hypoarousal or shutdown. Whatever the case, a person may feel constantly anxious, hyperarousal, 
and may not be able to enjoy themselves in normal activities. Another person in hypoarousal may feel incredibly depressed or immobilized and find it difficult to do much of anything. Remember, the nervous system is causing this, and it is it began as a way to keep you safe from the further trauma, so please seek help if this is happening to you. It seems like danger is everywhere. Some people... Um, are, are stuck in this state. Your brain and nervous system are naturally programmed and tuned to be aware of the danger to make sure that you survive. However, after a major traumatic event, your nervous system is prone to overreact to perceived threats and amp up your nervous system to account for many more, quote, false alarms. A series of false alarms can leave you jittery and scared to the point where you find yourself suffering from major anxiety symptoms. Easy startle reflex. If your nervous system is temporarily stuck on, quote, high alert, you will find yourself becoming suddenly startled at sounds or objects in your peripheral vision that could set you off into a panic state. It can take a lot of time in a safe space and utilizing stress reduction exercises and proper therapy before your nervous system can shift down to a more medium or low alert. Difficulties with sleep. Following a trauma, the nervous system can stay on high alert and this can cause difficulty sleeping or even getting enough sleep. Nightmares can also cause difficulties in getting adequate sleep. Loss of interest in sexual activity. Due to the stress of experiencing a trauma, one may feel adverse to sexual activity and notice a significant decrease in libido. Clearly, if trauma is related to sexual activity, it could easily reduce interest in sexual activity, but even if the trauma you experienced was not related to sex, experiencing post-traumatic stress symptoms can lower one's libido. Issues of emotional reactivity. So a common one is fear and anxiety. One of the most common emotional reactions to a traumatic event is feeling anxious or fearful. It is perfectly normal to feel afraid after something terrible has happened in your life. You fear, the fear you feel may be the result of normal nervous system functioning as your sympathetic system sprung into action during the traumatic event and has continued to work post being out of that situation. You may find yourself feeling more anxiety than you normally do, even though the traumatic event is over. Again, seek help if this is happening to you. Anger and irritability. Anger and irritability are common side effects of surviving a traumatic event. For some people, they may feel angry that this terrible event happened to them. For others, they actually blame themselves for the event and can become quite irritated at themselves. It is quite normal to feel irritable and angry following a traumatic experience. Sadness. It is normal to feel sad and even depressed following a traumatic event. It is normal to understand that sadness is a normal emotion and that crying and releasing emotions can actually help stimulate a parasympathetic response, um, although this will not happen if you were in the middle of a PTSD episode, most likely. And if you could release things through a parasympathetic response, that might help you de-stress and feel a little bit better temporarily. It is normal to have sadness and grief over what has happened, and that usually comes and goes. However, at time, the sadness following a traumatic event can manifest into a longer depressive episode. If that happens, you should definitely seek professional help. Guilt. No matter what has happened, many survivors of trauma feel inappropriate guilt. The guilt can occur if you were in an accident or a situation where other people were injured, but this inappropriate guilt can also occur regardless of the trauma that has befallen you. In fact, many people feel responsible for being hurt or attacked even when they have done nothing wrong, such as rape victims. They may feel responsible somehow through victim blaming or whatever for being raped, which is a crime. Uh, Also, for instance, I've worked with veterans who feel guilty for coming home from the war alive when other people died. They feel like it's not fair, and that can mix with other symptoms as well. 
feelings of numbness. Some survivors of trauma do not experience strong emotions, but instead feel shut down and at times physically as if something is weighing down on them. In fact, over time, they may experience anhedonia or the loss of pleasure of nearly everything they had previously enjoyed. The numbness begins as the nervous system is attempting to keep the person safe by, quote, shutting down and disconnecting. However, if this is a long-term issue, again, definitely want to seek professional help. So um, I'm going to talk about what trauma-informed counseling is. Again, there's many uh, modalities of trauma-informed counseling. Uh, And at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids, uh, I'm working to bring in the standards and guidelines outlined by SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration for being trauma-formed. So according to those, uh, according to SAMHSA, we're trying to work on the following, which is, uh, one, we realize the widespread impact of trauma and the understanding the potential path for recovery. Uh, two, recognizes the signs and symptoms of trauma in clients, family, staff, and others involved in the system. Three, we respond by fully integrating knowledge about trauma and into policies and procedures and practices. And four, we actively resist re-traumatization of people. So the emphasis on trauma-informed counseling modalities is a niche part of therapy uh, or was a niche part of the therapy world until the Adverse Child Experiences Study was published and its implications were understood. Of course, I've talked about this before, but let's go there again. In 1995, the Kaiser Permanente Group and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention began a breakthrough study on the overall effects, uh, health effects of people who would experience adverse child experiences. For two years, researchers gathered comprehensive medical information from over 17,000 patients at Kaiser's Health Clinic in San Diego. In addition to personal and family medical histories, participants in the study were given extensive questionnaires regarding childhood abuse, neglect, family dysfunction, and other things such as physical and emotional neglect, physical and sexual abuse, exposure to household members who had substance abuse problems or had been in prison and or also experiencing violence in the household. Anyway, you can read about that extensively if you want to. But the Adverse Child Experience Study researchers found that the present of presence of any of these harmful experiences in childhood was predictive of lifelong patterns with health and well-being, including negative physical symptoms and outcomes, more likely to suffer from addiction, more severe mental health problems, and the presence of major diseases and obesity and smoking. And I could keep going. In fact, the more negative experiences a participant reported, the more likely that they were to have problems later in life and be seen by multiple practitioners and doctors, and the more health problems they were likely to report as well. A potentially culturally disruptive finding was that the adverse child experiences were exceedingly common, much more than any of the researchers had anticipated. Approximately two-thirds of the participants had undergone at least one adverse child experience, and more than one in five respondents had endured three or more throughout their childhood. The initial data of the Adverse Child Experiences Study began decades of studying the prevalence and damaging effects of trauma, especially trauma during childhood. In turn, the field of psychotherapy responded by working on the developmental practices such as trauma-informed counseling, stressing the importance of recognizing and treating trauma and preventing additional trauma, which we just talked about. Today, many new modalities have been incorporated into the field 
of counseling that includes a, tra- a combination of trauma-informed counseling with tr- trauma-specific interventions such as EMDR, somatic experiencing therapy, um, which are both tailored to address the effects and symptoms of PTSD and traumatic events uh, from the past. And you can read more about the ACE study. I'll have the link in the show notes. A trauma-informed counselor helps a client understand where their symptoms and behaviors originated, of course, through that person's story, uh, not just going off blindly. And uh, and they help explain trauma's effects on the whole person, including the brain, body, nervous, automatic nervous system. Did I say automatic? I meant autonomic nervous system. And further, how this influences emotional regulation. And of course, the window of tolerance, which we could do a whole episode on and how we're all, we all have a window of tolerance and emotional regulation is, is a big part of knowing where you're at in that window of tolerance and being able to self-regulate. And with childhood trauma, it's very difficult to learn that skill. In addition to utilizing trauma-specific interventions, trauma-informed counselors can help clients understand the real significance of physical activity, which is very important to recovery, exercise, and walking, basic self-care routines, deep breathing, mindfully eating, uh, and that an intentional focus on wellness on a daily basis is one of the best ways to work on reversing the impact of trauma and nervous system arousal. Uh, Of course, that doesn't cure anything, but it can really help um, with maintenance. So I'm going to start talking about the fact that counseling is starting to incorporate mind-body interventions because trauma is not just in the mind, it's in the body, it's in the nervous system. Um, And there are a lot of fantastic counseling techniques that have been the bedrock of therapy for years. Um, And all of them, I believe, can be adapted in some way to understand the effects of trauma and the new research that we've been learning about in the last 20 years. Um, and so I, I think this whole emphasis on trauma-informed care is very important uh, because it's not a threat to psychotherapy. It's just going to make psychotherapy stronger. Uh, and then, of course, certain trauma-specific interventions are for trauma and have been developed for them. So, but if you're working with a healthcare professional, doctor, counselor or social worker, and they said things to you like, I eh, just don't think about that anymore. Or, well, I've done all I can for you. You probably are going to need to keep repeating your coping skills you learned. Uh, or, you know what, you're probably going to need to stay on medications for the rest of your life. Or, you know what, I don't think you're working hard enough in therapy. Or, well, you know, why didn't you, when you were uh, distressed, why didn't you just read over your cognitive behavioral therapy homework worksheet? That's just a cognitive distortion. Uh, if people are saying stuff like this to you, they're probably not trauma-informed healthcare professionals, which means they just may not be acquainted with the last 25 to 30 years of clinical research uh, on the field of trauma and neurobiology and trauma-informed care. And this is actually a very common problem in, uh, because many medical schools and even graduate institutions have yet to fully integrate the trauma-based information into the curriculum. Um, and even the research into traditional medical or counseling uh, classes. So they, the 
some people just didn't learn this and and haven't gone to the continuing ed about it and it hasn't been fully integrated or they've learned it and it seemed to be like a side track. Um, unfortunately, this is a widespread problem which can cause a great deal of misunderstandings and mi- misinformation. And thus, uh, people who have already experienced trauma might actually have what they call sanctuary trauma, uh, where they go into a healthcare professional and they're blamed for their condition. And they might start to believe that nothing can be done. So, um, essentially, this is very, very important. This is why I'm making this episode. So, have, have, have people ever told you, hey, you know what, uh, when you're stressed out, you know, just stop worrying, just relax. It's all in your head. As someone told you, you know, all, you know what you need to do to feel normal? You just need to uh, forgive the person that traumatized you and just uh, pray for them. You'll feel better. Um, has someone ever told you it's just, you know, you know what, at this point, it's your fault for being angry about the past. So after experiencing a significant stressful event, many people find that even with time, it is not possible to stop worrying or feeling stressed about it. Um, And uh, basically, you know, this is because what we've we've talked about before is that that uh, this information can be stored in your autonomic nervous system, and you may feel out of control. Uh, The autonomic nervous system is responsible for many of the unconscious actions that happen within your body, such as breathing or blinking. More specifically, the parasympathetic response of rest and digest or emotional regulation and the sympathetic responses of fight, flight, freeze, and avoid or shut down for safety are frequently becoming activated depending on the situation you are in. This is happening in the uh, amygdala area, and it's in subconscious. It's usually pre-conscious to us. Anyway, if you were in an ex- experiencing a stressful event or a trauma, the sympathetic responses of the autonomic nervous system were likely engaged. Additionally, the hypothalamic uh, pituitary adrenal axis located in the midbrain most likely was activated and began to send signals to the hypothalamus through hormonal messages to the pituitary gland, which in turn triggers one's adrenal glands. When the sympathetic nervous system is activated, stress hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline are released from those adrenal glands. These glands enable the body to instinctively prepare to face danger. So a lot of stuff is going on <laughs> we don't even know about. It. It's kind of happening in our body, and that's amazing. Uh, but if the effects of it are continuing to happen, we have to look into that. So Peter Levine, who I've discussed before, is a you know a four a leader in the and trauma expert in the field of psychotherapy, stated that trauma occurs when the natural biological process to fight, flight, or freeze is overwhelmed during an incident, and later an individual is not capable of physically releasing psychologically and psychologically processing a stressful event that occurred. A stressful event may not become a traumatic event stored in the nervous system if the person is able to fully process what has occurred and psychologically, and also release the energy physically. A brief example of a physical release would be crying, screaming, and shaking, just as a dog may, quote, shake off a stressful event. However, for most people, it is not easy, as there may be complex psychological and historical factors that cause the memory of this event to become a trauma. There is no one-size-fits-all to determine if a stressful event will become a traumatic event stored in the autonomic nervous system. It is all situational and depends on multiple factors. 
Nonetheless, if the stress response is not processed post-event, the effects will most likely remain in the autonomic nervous system, causing both physical and psychological symptoms. Typically, post-stressful event, a person may come across a situation that does not present a significant threat. Um, however, the subconsciously, the autonomic nervous system, or consciously, uh, recalls a traumatic incident based on some stimuli, causing an automatic release of stress hormones... Uh, releasing, and subsequently the person may experience a whole host of negative symptoms. One example, of course, are the symptoms involved in post-traumatic stress disorder. A frequent stress post uh, a frequent stress trigger post-event may result in blood rushing to extremities, the pupil dilation, muscle tension, increased breathing rate, rapid heartbeat, and sweating. Therefore, the autonomic nervous system responds in a sympathetic manner to both significant life-threatening events and, in this case, insignificant non-life-threatening events that appear uh, to the subconscious autonomic nervous system as a threat. And that's the problem with if you've got a trauma and different things that are not even threats, uh, current threats are uh, representing a threat and your body's overreacting. Uh, and this can be problematic to a person who's attempting to go about their daily life and continually feels physically, quote, triggered by non-threatening situations and then finds it difficult to reach a parasympathetic state where they can feel emotionally and physically regulated again and relaxed and connected with an ability to focus. For most people, quote, rational thinking or logical analysis did not easily control the biological responses of the autonomic nervous system. When you are caught up in a sympathetic response cycle, you will not be able to, quote, think your way out of it. If you then experience chronic stress post-event, it may cause a vicious pattern of emotional dissociation, immobility or freezing, or an ongoing release of stress hormones, which can lead to high blood pressure, among other symptoms, and cause damage to one's overall health. The brainstem, the most primitive part of the brain, as they call it in science, evolved to keep us alive and safe, and as a result can easily override, quote, higher order concerns of the prefrontal cortex and long and short-term memory retrieval of the midbrain. When the brainstem is triggered into action by a real or perceived threat, it causes the autonomic nervous system to jump into fight-flight-freeze response and will override the more, quote, evolved part of the human brain, the prefrontal cortex. This is why it's difficult to utilize reason and rationality to, quote, calm down when a sympathetic response is occurring and why a more physically-oriented therapeutic reaction, um, such as, you know, mind-body therapy would be more useful. Thus, when one is suffering the events of a trauma in one's life, they shouldn't feel ashamed that they cannot calm down um, when one suggests that they should. So Peter Levine again elaborates. The question is, how can humans become unstuck with, from immobility? Moving out of a, this frozen state can be a fiercely energetic experience. Without a rational brain, animals don't give it a second thought. Just They just do it. When humans begin to move out of their immobility response, however, we are often frightened by the intensity of our own energy and latent aggression, fear of emotions. And we brace ourselves against the power of the sensations, energy mixed with emotions. This bracing compl prevents complete discharge of energy necessary to restore normal functioning. So that's his theory there. Raw and unprocessed stress stored in the autonomic nervous system may be tied to to a traumatic memory that remains dormant or just below the surface. A current situation or sensation, touch, taste, smell, visualization, sound, may prompt an unprocessed memory or physical response to surface, quote-unquote. If one can understand what is happening with one's own brain, autonomic nervous system, and body, it is easier to have empathy and compassion for biologically programmed responses. Learning about why one's body responds via the brain and the autonomic nervous system, the way it does, can lead to further awareness and empowerment. It can move 
one from feeling like an isolated, fearful, and defeated person toward an experience of understanding and empathy for oneself. In fact, a person may then seek treatment for past traumatic experiences, which can cause unwanted, which are causing the unwanted symptoms in their current life, and they might be inspired to work on body-based exercises such as yoga or mindfulness to preventatively work on regaining some emotional regulation. If one learns about the power of the brain and the autonomic nervous system and the most unconscious behaviors uh, are for the purpose of staying safe or alive, we can move past the unnecessary shame and guilt. When we understand the physiological and psychological processes that are attempting to protect us from future harm, but may be exaggerated due to unprocessed stress or trauma, we can learn to turn down the volume of our inner judge and begin to approach ourselves with kindness. (coughs) The post-traumatic stress symptoms that plague people are reversible over time with the right doses of treatment, preventative activities, and non-judgmental self-care and reflection. Of course, somebody has to be environmentally safe as well. After personal safety is established... Post-event, one must understand that their overblown physiological and psychological and emotional responses that they may be avoiding are no longer a threat to them. That's a lot of difficult work to do that, though. Eventually, there is work to do both psychologically and physically, especially in retraining the body through mind-body-oriented therapies and activities. Um, We've already talked about some of them. Spontaneous movement, yoga, dance, swimming, listening to soothing music, deep breathing, organized music, dance groups, felt sense-oriented meditation, vocal toning, singing, hiking, running, spending time with pets and safe animals, professional massage, tai chi, martial arts, spending time in nature, uh, even reading. A simple act that you could practice is simply hugging a trusted person, which can enhance secretion of the hormone oxytocin, which is produced by the pituitary gland and can boost a sense of relaxation, bonding, and connection. <coughs> Obviously, this is not an option for everybody. There are also important exercises that can alter our physiology and influence our mood over time and repetition, or all those could, actually. But Again, do not do this without medical advice. These are all practices. They're not cure-alls. You definitely probably need treatment if you've had trauma. The next time a person proposes that it's all in your head, you will actually know how to accurately educate them, and you do not need to feel the shame yourself. Newfound awareness may help you overcome past hurts, guilt, and shame. Through accepting the influence trauma and stressful events have had on your life and being aware of the mechanisms, the brain and the autonomic nervous system at work inside you, You may find yourself empowered to work on your own recovery from trauma, further understanding that there are scientifically, empirically proven, validated therapies such as trauma-specific interventions, which we've talked about already and we'll talk about more, as well as preventative activities you can engage in uh, to help you on your journey. This means there's hope for really anyone who's willing to engage and and is willing to open up to this. With consistent repetition over time, we now know that we, our brain can rewire or increase the speed of synaptic connections that promote a feeling of health and well-being instead of fight-flight-freeze. However, this is not that simple as I'm reading all these things. I mean, engaging in self-regulating and emotional regulation activities can take hours of your week. And, you know, if you're stressed out from work, that may be difficult to engage in. Again, that without treatment is not enough. So, um, you know, those are things that I tell people, you know, recommend people do in addition to proper treatment. Um, And it's a, it's not just a, you know, 
turning on a light bulb and, oh, I did yoga five times, now I feel better from post-traumatic stress. It can be a long time of recovery. I think trauma-informed and trauma-specific interventions have proven, which we'll get to when we get to the research on EMDR, that um, with a small amount of intervention, even 12 sessions, people can get to a point where they're not having these amount of symptoms. Where at, but that all depends on where the trauma originated in the person and uh, what's going on in their current life, really, because some people with childhood developmental trauma, it's kind of like a roller coaster. They'll feel better for a while, and then something will spike up, uh, you know, because they had years of it. So that being said, I want to touch on how I believe trauma-informed counseling with a trauma-informed therapist may be different than some counseling you may have received in the past or some standard forms of counseling. Now, I will say there are many fantastic counselors out there that know a little bit about trauma and attachment and are doing fantastic work. I think this is more or less a comparison with treatment as usual, which would be before people were trauma-informed, kind of using some older paradigms and some older techniques. Um, So here we go. And it all comes down to the counselor because there's tons of counselors that are amazing no matter what they're training just because they know how to do it and they've got the gift. So here we go. That's just a disclaimer. So as trauma-informed counselors, we understand that a safe therapeutic environment is essential to aid in recovery. If you have not felt safe with past healthcare professionals, then you will understand why we trauma-informed therapists believe this. Oftentimes, someone who has experienced trauma can feel dismissed sort of dismissed by their therapist or healthcare professional. I think this happens more often not in the therapy office, but in uh, doctor's offices. Some people have reported that their therapist has guided them away from certain topics because they feared, quote, opening up all of their pain. In contrast, a trauma-informed therapist recognizes that learning to cope with pain is an essential part of recovery. A trauma-informed therapist should not shy away from certain topics. Trauma-related stress, symptoms, and behaviors originate from a person attempting to adapt following a traumatic experience. At times, someone who has experienced trauma will withdraw or what we can also call shut down, quote-unquote, when encountering emotional pain. A trauma-informed therapist will understand and accept that this is a coping skill, not, quote-unquote, resistance. Many, quote, problem behaviors such as cutting, overusing alcohol and drugs, or certain behaviors are an attempt to soothe emotions post-trauma. And so a trauma-informed therapist has a holistic view of these things and will understand this fact and not cast moral judgments. While these aforementioned behaviors are not ideal coping strategies, they did serve a purpose at the time. A trauma-informed therapist gives individuals an opportunity to realize how resourceful they were in managing a very difficult experience. So in therapy, recovery from trauma and trauma symptoms is identified as a goal of the treatment. Many clients come in complaining of depression, anxiety, insomnia, and poor life satisfaction. Oftentimes, they have not been shown that there is a major connection between their past trauma history and their current difficulties, or quote-unquote, symptoms. A trauma-informed therapist understands that scientific evidence endorses brain plasticity and the ability to recover from the trauma. The difficulty is not only helping the client with trauma-specific interventions to directly confront the traumatic past, but also helping the client set up different ways of living and promoting brain plasticity in their lives outside of the therapy office. Resiliency, strength-based techniques, and skills training should also be a part of the treatment. 
there are many alternative coping strategies that can be learned to cope with post-trauma and past trauma. The trauma-informed counselor should teach the client some of these practices that they can utilize outside of therapy. A trauma-informed therapist focuses on strengths rather than pathologies. I think this is a big major difference. Um, I've talked to many people, especially in the community that is recovering from overusing substances that feel as if they were pathologized. Also people that were cutting and just different behaviors that they were using to cope with the traumatic emotions in the past, they felt that they were being demonized, um, judged, and whatnot. So I think a big difference is the trauma-informed therapist realizes that strengths are most important. And really, it's astounding that people have even lived through the trauma. Uh, a lot of people experience trauma and and they commit suicide and other terrible things. So it is important to acknowledge this fact and show them their own resilience. Further, a trauma-informed therapist should help a client build up their strengths while working on ways to reduce symptoms or behaviors that are troublesome to them. Trauma recovery should be a collaborative effort. The trauma-informed therapist should continually help a client define their personal goals for treatment and what recovery looks like for them. Another question I get a lot is, uh, why is trauma-informed counseling important and why haven't I heard of it? Well, the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, statistics on violence and abuse in the United States are eye-opening, to say the least. Based on longitudinal studies, the CDC reports that in the United States, one in four children will experience some sort of maltreatment, sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, while one in four women will experience domestic violence. Additionally, one in five women and one in 71 men have experienced rape at some point in their lives. 12% of these women and 30% of these men were younger than 10 years old when they were raped. This means that a large number of people in the United States have experienced serious traumatic events at some point in their lives. There's way more statistics I could go into, but I don't want to go on about this. As a result of the CDC findings and other such reports, we believe it is of extreme importance that all healthcare professionals become trauma-informed so that they may better understand the influences of trauma on their patients and help them better diagnose and treat what they find. However, broadly speaking, healthcare training and education have not kept up with the neurobiology research and scientific studies that have experienced groundbreaking revolution and revolutionary revelations since the late 90s. Because of this, many antiquated cultural attitudes and outright false ideas are still being perpetuated and uttered by doctors, social workers, and therapists alike during medical visits and counseling sessions. These cultural cliches, based on older, uh, primitive more primitive science and cultural stereotypes and really complete ignorance of the latest research have had many negative effects on patients. For instance, some patients who are struggling with the effects of trauma may have been labeled with extreme diagnoses, which may identify, quote, a cluster of symptoms, but does not identify the etiology or origin of their situation, nor the cure. As a result, many patients have accepted that they are just, quote, unquote, mentally ill, remember that term, mentally ill, instead of understanding that these diagnostic labels that were placed upon them by a healthcare practitioner should not be treated as the answer to their problem, but rather are an off inaccurate way for healthcare professionals to understand the chief complaint, quote unquote, or the idea of symptomology. Mental health diagnoses give a quote snapshot of what's going on, but are not the quote whole picture. In fact, Almost every single mental health diagnosis on record in the DSM-5 cannot be validated by blood tests or other, quote, hard scientific tests. Therefore, 
If a healthcare professional does not understand the effects of trauma on a person's mental state and their autonomic nervous system, they may slap a diagnosis on them, which, while a part of their picture, completely derails the client from fully understanding what is happening to them and may avert them from receiving treatments that are designed to help people who have suffered from traumatic events. For instance, they could... Uh, they're, they've proven that it's very difficult for a group of psychiatrists or therapists or social workers to agree on diagnoses when people come in and duress. So a lot of times somebody might get bipolar. Um, while they might really actually have what resembles bipolar, they might also be suffering from acute trauma effects. We're not really quite sure. There is no blood test to prove which one's happening. We can tell that there's a nervous system uh, response, and we can tell there's patterns of symptoms and behavior. But there's a lot of disagreement about based on the time of presentation. Not only are healthcare professionals as a whole not receiving adequate education on trauma and its physical and psychological effects on the person, but many graduate institutions currently training counselors and social workers have not yet fully incorporated the new science and paradigm shift implications into their training. Lately, there has been a push to make graduate schools, quote, trauma-informed, but unfortunately being trauma-informed is not yet the norm in most clinics, and thus the public suffers and healthcare professionals and even therapists are frustrated because they do not know why certain people are not improving, while at the same time certain modalities and techniques are that they traditionally use are helping other people. These are people, of course, usually not suffering from the acute or chronic effects of post-traumatic stress or other events. Thus, many counselors and therapists have taken it upon themselves to receive continuing education in the field to become further trauma-informed. Even further, trauma-specific interventions require a long period of training to become certified. Uh, what I'm talking about here, our place, the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids, is working to ensure that all of their therapists utilize trauma-specific interventions that have taken the necessary extracurricular coursework to be certified in that modality, and in other words, we have had significant training. We did not just go to a weekend seminar and state that we now practice blank intervention without the appropriate training or consultation. The therapists at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids are highly influenced by the works of Dan Siegel, Francine Shapiro, Bessel van der Kolk, Bruce Perry, Peter Levine, all doctors, to name a few. The counselors at Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids have spent time becoming educated by the work of the Child Trauma Academy, the EMDR Institute, the ACES Study, Interpersonal Neurobiology Series, the Trauma Research Foundation, Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute, the Mindsight Institute, the Arizona Trauma Institute, and other organizations, PESI, um, Dr. Robert Roten, and other people utilizing research to help better the lives of people through education, clinical practice, and policy, and of course, therapeutic interventions. Here is just something I wanted to read a little bit. Here's one of the many studies discussing the enormous treatment effects of EMDR. Quote, quote, A particular note with respect to the general clinical practice is a study conducted by Kaiser per Permanente that reported that 100% of single trauma victims and, 70 70, sorry, and 77% of multiple trauma victims no longer had PTSD after a mean, an average, of six 50-minute EMDR therapy sessions, demonstrating a large and significant pre-treatment versus post-treatment effect size, 1.74. This is consistent with other uh, RCTs that found that the 84 to 90% of single trauma victims no longer had PTSD after three 90-minute EMDR sessions. Most recently, a study founded by the National Institute of Mental Health evaluated the effects of eight EMDR therapy compared to eight weeks of treatment with flu fluxetine, which is Prozac, 
EMDR was superior for the amelioration of both PTSD symptoms and depression. Upon the termination of therapy, the EMDR group continued to improve, whereas Fluxetine patients, Prozac, who had reported as asymptomatic at post-tests, again became symptomatic. At follow-up, 91% of the EMDR group no longer had PTSD, compared with 72% of the Fluxetine group. I have that article in the show notes. Now, uh, something about that to be clear, EMD, uh, PTSD is a very serious diagnosis. So while they no longer met criteria, that means they had improved. It didn't mean that they were symptom-free after those sessions, but it meant that they were no longer qualifying for post-traumatic stress dis- disorder, which is amazing. They may still have had anxiety or depression to some degree. The study didn't uh, track that. They were just tracking PTSD. So, um, yeah, I want to go read some more about this. So I appreciate everybody listening to this. And, um, okay, so here's a question I get a lot. Are there trauma-specific interventions that don't require a great deal of talking uh, yes, you don't just have to talk anymore. That's the beauty of EMDR and somatic experiencing technique, um, is that they are scientifically validated mind-body techniques, mind-body in quotes. Um, a lot of people don't like to talk about what happened, and so these techniques minimize talking. Uh, with these therapies, the focus is not just on talking and processing current problems and issues or even past events. Um, it's normal not to want to talk about these things. The great thing about mind-body therapies is that you can receive all the benefits of regular counseling, talk therapy, which is already an extremely effective form of treatment for all kinds of symptoms and situations. You can read articles on the validity of just regular talk therapy. And in addition, you can work on the different ways to address the underlying somatic or physical feelings and emotions that are not easily accessed with talk-only techniques. EMDR and somatic experiencing therapy work to incorporate physical sensations in the body in a therapeutic way with cognitive techniques uh, that target the mind. Both therapies are now offered at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids, of course, at Health for Life Grand Rapids. What if I don't identify as having experienced traumatic events? Can I still participate in therapy with counselors at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids? otherwise known as Health for Life? Well, of course you can. While we have focused our practice on helping those who have experienced traumatic events in their life, we all have training in traditional counseling and talk therapy techniques, including couples and family therapy, and also working with children. And uh, we all use those modalities when appropriate. Uh, While we all have uh, experienced advanced training with the effects of trauma, I would say that that would help us actually even qualify us more to work with maybe not a non-traumatic event, maybe a life change or going through depression, going through anxiety, difficulties with your child, difficulties with the young adult, difficulty with the marriage. Um, yeah, we do all of that as well. This is just our sort of clinic's focus right now, um, and that's our specialty. What does relief of symptoms caused by trauma involve? With enough work, both in therapy and your personal life, and other appropriate modalities, such as medical interventions, other therapies, preventative activities, etc., most symptoms that become focused on will eventually either be eliminated, reduce greatly, or transform and stop being so bothersome. So the weird thing about that is I'm saying we have to focus on the symptom, and that is something you can learn in therapy. Related to focusing on a symptom, we have to realize that there is a difference between relief and having control of a situation that is triggering. 
even with intensive therapy, you may still experience triggers depending on your traumatic background. However, the aim of the trauma-focused therapies is that your triggers, quote-unquote, have a significantly reduced stress response, and therefore you are able to maintain meta-awareness, also called dual awareness. And therefore, when faced with a trigger, you should be able to maintain your dual awareness that you are triggered and that you are not being faced with imminent danger, which can cause the symptoms to be much less bothersome than before treatment. While the results vary, it is safe to say that a counselor that is trauma-informed is going to have a much better understanding of your situation than a counselor who is not. Part of getting results is making sure that you have the, quote, right fit in terms of a therapist, and also making sure you are getting educated about your symptoms and what you can do about them outside of the therapy office. For instance, a person who has experienced a single incident trauma, such as a car accident or a sudden job loss that happened while they were in adulthood, often sees much uh, sees results much more quickly than someone who's experienced multiple intense and complex traumas over a long period of time. Another example is that a person who has been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder may have a lot more work to do in therapy than someone who identifies as having basic trauma in his or her life from a traumatic experience. Again, it's all subjective, though. It really just depends on the person. I've had people with full post-traumatic stress disorder um, feel way better on their baseline within very few, in my opinion, very few sessions. Someone who has experienced childhood developmental trauma will likely need more long-term care with multiple modalities to help them manage their symptoms and have a better quality of life. Again, that's just an estimate. However, there is hope for, for people that have experienced this and everyone I've discussed if they work on it. Just like if you have a phys- just like if you're in physical therapy for a problem with your ankle, if you strengthen the muscles in the appropriate places, eventually you should be able to walk with much less pain than before. Just like therapy, trauma-informed counseling should have a comprehensive approach to not only focus on symptom relief, but to empower people to move into f- further into their recovery and also just to really start enjoying life and transforming and going deeper. Another question I get a lot, is it true that anxiety, anger, depression, relationship issues, and more can be rooted in past traumatic experiences? Yes, there is ample evidence to suggest that current symptomology of anxiety, depression, anger, and even relationship issues can be rooted in the autonomic nervous system responses and subsequent changes in perspective and personality originating with experiencing one or more traumatic events. While this is not the case for everyone, it is worth investigating if your symptoms are the result of unprocessed traumatic events resulting in psychological and physical symptoms in the present day. For certain people, they may find that working on processing their past traumatic experiences may help them gain symptom relief. For others, they may need to work on reducing current symptoms and resolving or changing current situations and maybe even just getting emotional education before working on anything from their past that may be influencing them. For most people, they will notice that there is a combination of factors at play, including current stressors and difficulties uh, and symptoms which can all have independent effects but can also interact with stored, unprocessed, or unresolved memories and old patterns in the autonomic nervous system which makes it important for them to both develop coping skills in the present, work on the existential meaning of all that has occurred, and to work on resolving unresolved memories and physical patterns so that they can better function in the present. And, of course, not to mention relationships, working on those, uh, as having positive relationships can be a very helpful thing for people. In a sense, the prefrontal cortex is able to function without unnecessary interference from the brainstem, which, of course... Your brainstorm may perceive neutral objects and situations as a threat post-traumatic experience. Uh, 
and in this case, cause the individual to regain higher functioning, experience less perceived stress, and even feel joy and happiness once again. It is important to understand that there is not a one-size-fits-all for any type of counseling or psychotherapy. Whether a trauma-specific intervention or not, any therapist that tells you there is only one way to recovery should be suspect. The more education you seek um, about your mind and your body, and the more powerful advocate you will be in your own recovery, and thus you can find... the the clinician that best fits your personality and situation to aid you on your journey. Um, yeah, so basically at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids, all the counselors have undergone extensive training in order to help you. So following graduate school, all the counselors at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids have uh, ex- received extensive training, understanding the latest scientific research on neurobiology and how trauma affects the whole person. In addition, all of our therapists have learned at least one trauma-specific intervention modality, which they have added to their toolbox of standard counseling techniques in order to best help all people who seek help. This means that they not only have the same training or similar training to your average counselor or therapist, Uh, to conduct traditional counseling and talk therapy, but they also have additional tools and information that will be helpful to people who are looking for more of a, quote, solution-focused, brief approach, or strictly cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, More good news, all of our therapists have been trained in cognitive behavioral therapy and different versions of solution-focused brief therapy and can interweave those modalities into their personal style. And so if you were seeking that type of counseling, we can also provide it. I would just say overall, I mean, I'm talking about my place, but I would just say you've got to find a good fit. I mean, there there is definitely, I think, somebody at our place that could help you. But, you know, that's not always the case. Personality-wise, that is one of the most important things is to find somebody that fits your personality. So I would say seek, you know, seek a lot of different counselors, read about them, uh, have a 15-minute free consultation. Don't just go with somebody based on their skill set, too. I mean, I think that you do want to consider the skill set while because that will obviously inform the experience you're going to have, but it's important to really feel connected to the person you're working with. So now I'm going to talk just a little bit about different types of trauma-specific interventions. I'm going to talk a little bit about EMDR, briefly somatic experiencing therapy, trauma-informed counseling, trauma-informed cognitive behavioral therapy, what I'm calling trauma-sensitive mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, acceptance and commitment, and the neurosequential model. So let's talk about EMDR, or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. EMDR is an integrative psychotherapy methodology that that has been proven effective for the treatment of trauma through extensive research. Dr. Francine Shapiro first developed it. I have a number of health articles on our site about it. If you go to health articles, which is on the bottom bar of healthforlifegr.com, and you click EMDR, you will see many articles discussing many different facets of EMDR. So... EMDR therapy process is a set of standardized protocols that incorporates elements from many different treatment approaches and can be combined with other modes of therapy. Now, but it doesn't feel like a manualized approach. Uh, The therapist integrates it in, but you'll know when you're doing some of the interventions, they are different than talk therapy. EMDR enables people to heal from the symptoms and emotional distress that come from disturbing life experiences, also known as traumas. Repeated studies show that EM, utilizing EMDR therapy helps people gain the same empirically proven results of counseling in a much shorter time period than traditional talk therapy. Culturally speaking, there is an adage, time heals all wounds. With symptoms resulting from trauma, the emotional pain associated with unresolved traumas does not always dissipate. We've talked about that a lot here. Research studies on EMDR have proven that 
the mind can, in fact, resolve issues stemming from psychological trauma, much like the body recovers from physical trauma. The result of EMDR therapy for most people leads to a large decrease in symptoms in a, short, in a shorter time span. If you accidentally cut your foot, the body has a mechanism in place to start closing and eventually healing the wound. If there is a foreign object in the foot or repeated injuries continue to irritate the area, it will cause pain and not heal correctly. It may require medical intervention. However, once the obstacle to cure is removed, the healing process resumes. Just like the example of the foot, EMDR therapy targets and has demonstrated that a similar process can occur with mental and emotional processes. The brain's adaptive information processing network seeks homeostasis toward overall emotional and mental wellness. However, if this system is obstructed or uh, knocked out of balance by disturbing events or traumas, an emotional um, or mental wound can worsen and cause intense suffering. Some of the symptoms can be described as severe anxiety and depression and many more. Once the obstacle or obstruction is removed, healing in the mind resumes. Using the detailed protocols and procedures learned in the EMDR training, along with the toolbox of counseling techniques, EMDR trained therapists can help clients activate their natural healing mechanism and move past traumas to a place where they can experience deep healing and transformation. I talk a lot about this in episode 13 as well. More than 30 positive controlled outcome studies have been done on EMDR therapy. I'm sure there's more by now. Some of the studies illustrated that 84 to 90% of single victim traumas no longer qualified for the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder after only three 90-minute sessions. I did talk about some EMDR studies earlier in this podcast. Thanks to extensive research, EMDR therapy is now recognized as an effective form of treatment for trauma and other disturbing experiences by organizations such as the American Psychiatric Association, the World Health Organization, and the U.S. Department of Defense. As EMDR has been recognized worldwide as an effective treatment of trauma, it can be anecdotally stated that EMDR therapy would also be effective in treating everyday memories connected to feelings of low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, and many other internal struggles that bring people into counseling. In fact, many clinicians have utilized advanced EMDR techniques to target the overwhelming, quote, felt symptoms in the body of the client and then connect these to thoughts in a way that has actually reduced the felt symptoms and helps the person understand why they experience such symptoms in the first place. So you're not feeling it in the body as much, and you're also not believing it mentally as much, the results of trauma. Millions of people who've been treated successfully over the past 25 years with EMDR. If you see an EMDR therapist, make sure that they were properly trained and have received at least the basic certification of six full days of training and 10 consultation hours uh, through the EMDR Institute, EMDRIA, International Association uh, approved therapists, if you are a person with multiple traumas or complex PTSD, it would be wise to seek an EMDR therapist who has completed advanced EMDR training post the basic training. Here's an interesting fact, and I'll post this in the show notes. Seven of ten random control trials have indicated that EMDR therapy is more rapid or otherwise superior to cognitive behavioral therapy, and only one have reported superior effects of cognitive behavioral therapy on some measures. The latter is likewise the only random control trial of 25 to report a control condition superior to EMDR. So basically, uh, there is one that 
and, and you can read more about why. Whereas the EMDR therapy involved only eight standard sessions and no homework, the CBT treatment was vastly more complex and entailed four sessions of imaginal exposure describing the trauma and four sessions of therapist-assisted in vivo exposure physically going to the disturbing location, plus 50 hours of combined imaginal exposure and in vivo homework. The EMDR therapy condition uh, involved only eight standard sessions and no homework. So basically... Ten, seven of ten random control trials have indicated that EMDR therapy is rapidly and is more rapid and otherwise superior to cognitive behavioral therapy, and one reported superior effects to cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for cognitive behavioral therapy, but it had way more treatment, so it wasn't even really a fair study. So there's a graphic I put on the website. Before EMDR therapy, the memory has a present-day charge of seven, and it feels like the trauma is happening now. And after EMDR therapy... The memory of trauma should appear uh, a present-day ch- emotional charge of zero or one, and the trauma feels like it's happened in the past. So you can go on our website and find out who is trained in EMDR and work on that if you want to. Somatic experience therapy is a different type of therapy, and I want to talk a little bit about that, as it's pretty unique and there's not too many people that do it, as it takes a lot of training to be um, certified in that In Peter Levine's classic book on healing, Waking the Tiger, he has a whimsical section entitled, quote, blame it on the neocortex, neocortex. In other words, when coming, when it comes to dealing with traumatic events, be they crisis events or ongoing hardships, we humans are, quote, overthinking things to our own detriment. This is why cognitive behavioral approaches to traumatic events are often ineffective. Dr. Levine says, the neocortex is not powerful enough to override the instinctual defense response to threat and danger, the fight-flight-freeze responses, or the flight-flee-or-freeze responses. Animals have primitive coping responses when faced with disrupting or disarming events. They respond instinctively. Turtles duck under the water. Moles burrow. Dogs, wolves, coyotes roll over in submissive postures. All animals have a survival freeze response pattern as well as a flight pattern and a fight pattern. Of course, some animals are first fighters and only secondary those who flee. No animal, says Levine, has conscious control over whether it freezes to a response to a threat. That includes us human beings. In response to a threat, we can fight, flee, or freeze. Freezing is the last option. When the others fail and we don't choose that one, our nervous system, based upon its primitive survival makeup, decides that for us. And that freeze response can cause us a lot of trouble. Symptoms such as depression, emotional and relational distancing, numbness and lack of motivation, dissociation and physical ailments can all be the result of a highly charged, life-threatening exposure experience that gets us shut down or frozen inside of ourselves. The fight-flight-freeze responses can cause havoc when they get internalized in the system. So here's the problem with the neocortex solution to trauma events. In the aftermath of a traumatic event or a history of such events, the frontal brain doesn't know how to deal with the fight-flight-freeze responses and energies that are still locked into the nervous system following those intense events. That stuff is also lodged or stuck in the, quote, primitive brain, the nervous system, and the body. So how do we get, quote, unstuck, you ask? Somatic experiencing therapy brings healing through awareness. Most of the awareness centers on the, quote, felt sense in the body as opposed to the cognitive awarenesses of the exact events. Clients learn self-regulation and self-calming through co-regulation with the therapist. Outmoded defense patterns are abandoned for new patterns of self-awareness. The natural healing instincts of the body prevail when clients are supported and nurtured in a way that the whole person 
can fully receive. Lectures are stimulating and interesting, but they don't usually heal trauma. Talk can only do so much. The story is only part of the memory. There is other memory held in the, quote, primitive brain in the body. So how do we get unstuck? We learn to regulate our nervous systems with the help of a therapist. We release old, trapped, and damaging memories. We attend to ourselves, learn to track things which disturb us on the level of a felt sense, and we find the inner resources that have been there all along. We notice that things make us, quote, feel good, and we tap into the calm and the strength that is already within us. We heal through renewed confidence, self-awareness, courage, and hope. The somatic experiencing method is a body-oriented psychotherapy along approach to the healing of trauma along with other stress disorders. Dr. Peter Levine invented the therapy method as a result of multidisciplinary study of stress physiology, psychology, ethology, biology, neuroscience, indigenous healing practices, and medical biophysics, together with over 45 years of successful clinical application. The somatic experiencing approach works to release traumatic shock, which is one of the keys to transforming PTSD and the wounds of emotional and early developmental attachment trauma. And we do have a therapist at the Trauma-Informed Counseling um, Center of Grand Rapids who uh, it does somatic experiencing therapy, which took him a long time to get certified in that. So, um, trauma-informed counseling in general. I think I've kind of been over this, but I'm just going to go over it again for those of you who are listening. Um, I am making sure that all of the staff are at least trauma-informed. While they all have different counseling styles and maybe even, and they all have trauma-specific interventions, all the clinicians should be up to date and understanding trauma, which is very important for the therapeutic process of anyone even if you don't identify as having trauma. Our office is a safe space where there'll be no shame or blame put upon you for what you were going through. Many have experienced such reactions from people in their lives and unfortunately some non-trauma-informed clinicians in the past. Our counselors all recognize that anyone can experience both psychological, emotional, and physical somatic reactions to trauma and or disturbing life events. In fact, if someone has experienced multiple traumas, such as the victim of childhood abuse or neglect and the victim of a crime, both the experience in the aftermath and other traumatic, complex traumatic events, they may have a diverse set of unwanted symptoms and behaviors. Multiple longitudinal studies, including the Adverse Child Experiences Study, ACES study, found long-term negative mental and physical health consequences that resulted from the traumatic experiences during childhood and adolescence. Trauma-informed counseling in general is more of an overarching approach to providing compassionate and empirically proven care. A trauma-informed counselor collaborates with their clients to help them understand the origins of symptoms and behaviors that they may be experiencing. Further, a trauma-informed counselor will suggest connections to activities outside of therapy that may help a person better regulate their emotional and physical health. A trauma-informed counselor will utilize interventions and exercises and therapy that are aimed at helping relieve the symptoms that resulted from the traumatic experience. We're going to talk about trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. It is an evidence-based therapy treatment for adults as well as children and adolescents and their parents and caregivers who have been impacted by trauma. Research studies have illustrated that trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy has successfully resolved a broad array of emotional and behavioral difficulties associated with single, multiple, and even complex trauma experiences. Also known as TFCBT, it is a form of therapy that incorporates cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, to address the specific emotional and mental health needs of 
children, adolescents, and adult survivors, and families who are struggling to overcome the devastating effects of early childhood trauma. TFCBT is specially tailored to the unique issues of youth suffering from post-traumatic stress and mood dysregulation resulting from violence, grief, and abuse. As TFCBT interventions usually target children, a TFCBT counselor often brings non-offending parents or other caregivers into treatment and incorporates principles of family therapy as well. There are some people at our office at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids that are trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy trained. The next one I have labeled trauma-sensitive mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Essentially, this therapy I'm talking about is a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. It's being implemented from a trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive perspective. The reason that this is important is that if a mindfulness teacher or a therapist who is utilizing mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was not trauma-informed, they may not be able to help a person with the pitfalls of a trauma memory-induced panic attacks or intrusive thoughts that may arise during mindfulness-based or calming exercises. It is also important that a mindfulness-based cognitive therapist and a mindfulness exercise facilitator understand that, quote, avoidance of traumatic material could cause symptoms to worsen, and some uh, stress reduction activities can focus on avoidance while others should be bringing your attention to the breath in the present moment, which can actually help. It's just that you need to have the training to find out what's going on with the people in your group or your therapy. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is an empirically validated intervention based on the melding of cognitive behavioral therapy principles and Eastern mindfulness practices. Sindel Siegel, Mark Williams, and John Teasdale modified John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction program for psychiatric treatment and developed what is now known as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. According to their book, The Mindful Way Through Depression, which is a great book, you should read it, the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was originally developed to treat recurrent depression and reducing the vulnerability of future relapses into depressive episodes. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy has also been shown to improve symptoms of depression in some people with physical health conditions such as vascular disease and traumatic brain injury. Recent adaptations for survivors of trauma have shown support for significantly reduced trauma-related symptoms. One reason this may be is that mindfulness-based Cognitive therapy activities, if utilized correctly and repetitively, can actually strengthen the brain's ability to withstand stressful situations and events, while other mindfulness-based activities can help create new neural pathways that foster resilience in thoughts and behavior. So that goes back to what I was talking about before with the fact that trauma-informed counseling focuses on strengths and not pathologies. Mindfulness-based stuff can really, if you're doing it repetitively and you're learning these exercises and not focusing on the trauma, it can actually help you with your stress response uh, if that person is able to get to that point through the meditations and the mindfulness stress activities, or stress reduction, I should say. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was originally developed as an eight-week group program, but can also be taught in a one-on-one therapeutic setting. As an eight-week program in a group setting, participants learn cognitive behavioral techniques alongside mindfulness exercises designed to increase non-judgmental moment-to-moment awareness of thoughts, emotions, and bodily sensations. Participants use mindfulness exercises to promote new ways of relating to the internal mind-body experiences and current situational occurrences using curiosity, acceptance, and compassion. I've got some articles on that on the website and at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids. We do have a clinician or two that is trained in this. The next therapeutic, trauma-specific therapeutic intervention I'm going to talk about is acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT or ACT. 
so I'm just going to call it ACT, is an action-oriented approach to psychotherapy that combines traditional behavioral therapies and cognitive behavioral therapy. Clients learn to directly face inner emotions instead of avoiding or denying them and work to accept these deeper feelings as appropriate responses to certain situations. When implemented, ACT enables clients to be able to take action and their newfound awareness uh, into action to help them move forward, no longer allowing unwanted behaviors or avoidance of emotions to prevent them from moving forward in their lives. By gaining a better understanding of themselves, their behaviors and emotions, clients begin to accept certain issues and hardships in their lives and actively commit to making essential changes in their behavior, regardless of what is going on in their lives and their programmed or repetitive feelings about it from the past. Counselors that utilize ACT help individuals acknowledge the ways in which their attempts to control, suppress, or overmanage emotional experiences create challenges in their lives. By recognizing and directly addressing these challenges, individuals can become better able to implement values-based actions that support their overall well-being. When utilized effectively, ACT has helped treat depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, workplace stress, test anxiety, social anxiety disorder, and psychosis. ACT has also been utilized in the treatment of medical conditions such as chronic pain, substance abuse, and diabetes. There is growing evidence that it can help with the symptoms caused by traumatic or disturbing events, and I have found, especially with acute trauma, that ACT is very valuable. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT, is more of a contemporary form of psychotherapy that focuses on mindfulness and acceptance activities. According to ACT's paradigm, most mental health symptoms result from the attempt to avoid past experience or feeling. As a result, a goal of the treatment uh, with ACT is to develop more open, accepting, and mindful attitudes towards distressing memories and emotions, as well as negative conditions rather than avoiding them. ACT consists mainly of exercises, role-playing, and metaphors as part of the treatment to address six core processes. Acceptance, diffusion, present moment awareness, self as context, values, and committed action. Acceptance and commitment therapy can be delivered in individual and group settings, and elements can be incorporated into diverse types of counseling and therapies. Luckily, we have people at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids who utilize this therapy and have been trained and certified in it. Lastly, the neurosequential model, we do not have anyone <laughs> who does this therapy yet because it's so involved, but I'm, I love this therapy, and you can, see, you can hear in a previous podcast, I believe it's podcast 23, my episode, my second interview with Randy Webb, we talk all about Dr. Bruce Perry's neurosequential model, but here is just a little preview. Of course, the neurosequential model originates from the work of Dr. Bruce Perry, MD, PhD, and the Child Trauma Academy. The approach is pivotal to understanding trauma and the developing brain. The neurosequential model utilizes developmental psychology and the science of the brain development to create an informed, biologically accurate approach to working and engaging with at-risk children. The neurosequential model itself is not a specific therapeutic technique or intervention. I mean, it, it is and it's not. I mean, it, it's, 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 however, it is a model that can be utilized by lay people, educators, and clinicians alike. So I, when I said that, I mean, obviously, if you're trained in it, you can start utilizing it as a clinician, but you've got to be trained in it, and then you can bring it into your trauma-specific interventions or trauma-informed counseling. Uh, it helps organize a child's history and current functioning levels. The goal of the neurosequential approach is to best meet the needs of the child through the intentional structuring of the assessment of the child. In this way, it is vital to properly articulate 
the primary problems in the trauma-informed and developmentally accurate way that shifts away from blame and shame. It helps identify the significant strengths of the child and the family system and works to apply interventions, therapeutic interventions, educational interventions, and even enrichment activities in a way that will help everyone involved, including family, educators, therapists, and related professionals. So the neurosequential model is really awesome. I need to get trained in it. I've only had some education in it, uh, and I'm hoping eventually to uh, implement it here at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center in Grand Rapids at Health for Life. So a couple other notes about it. The neurosequential model integrates the core principles of neurodevelopment and traumatology to inform diverse types of work with children, families, and the communities in which they live. The neurosequential approach consists of three main components, training, capacity building, assessment, and then specific recommendations for the selection of sequencing of therapeutic, educational, and enrichment activities that match the needs and strengths of the individual. In a way, it is a strength-based approach, which is science-based, that enlists the family and community to surround an individual and help their inner and outer resources for a successful outcome. In understanding the neurosequential model, a therapist can offer a trauma-informed approach to therapy that it not only recognizes, but also emphasizes the understanding how the traumatic experiences impact a child's mental, behavioral, emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being and can be a negative influence on behavior, which often flags a child as the identified patient. How many times have we heard that? Um, It is the family system that we've got to work with, especially when we're working with children, not just the person who's acting as if, you know, they're acting out the symptoms, they're unhappy. Utilizing the neurosequential model as a basis for therapy helps root the therapist and the family in understanding the connection between the trauma experience and the child's emotional and behavioral responses. The purpose of the trauma-informed counseling for children is to offer skills and strategies to assist both the parents and caregivers and the child in better understanding, coping with, processing emotions and memories tied to traumatic experiences. The goal is to empower the child and the family to create healthier behavioral patterns and more adaptive responses to the overall meaning of the experiences that have happened. So while we've all learned a little bit about it, this is more involved, and I I believe you really kind of need a team approach to implement this because you've got to get the family and the school and different people involved. It cannot just be um, just working with the kid. It's got to be a larger model. So there you have it. That is... What I've got to say right now about the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center at Grand, of Grand Rapids that we are creating at Health for Life Grand Rapids. You can learn more at healthforlifegr.com forward slash trauma-informed-counseling and there will be a link on the homepage soon uh, that will direct you there. And remember, listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please call 911 now or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. While this was a lot of literature I was summarizing in my writing and is based upon the research, it also had some of my personal opinions in it uh, based on my experience, and therefore it should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on the subject. If you are researching the best treatment for yourself, please talk to a professional and uh, please talk to multiple professionals and see, you know, qualified ones and see what is going to work for you. If you're in need of counseling, please make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. In my opinion, I'm hoping they're trauma informed and a lot of them are these days. So that's good. 
You can also make an appointment with somebody at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids if you're in the Grand Rapids area. You can do this by going to healthforlifegr.com. Uh, you can Google Health for Life Grand Rapids or paulkrauscounseling.com will also redirect you there. And you can also give our office a call at 616-200-4433. That's 616-200-4433. That's another way of getting to a counselor. And so I will have a lot of these links from what I was talking about in the show notes. I really appreciate everyone listening and supporting this podcast. And I guess I will do a little plug here. Uh, We utilize Simple Practice Electronic Medical Records. And if you are a therapist who is looking for good medical records, I do recommend using Simple Practice. Um, It keeps me organized. It's secure. It's HIPAA protected. It's really cool. And it even does billing now, which is pretty awesome. And I think is a great asset if you are looking to um, expand your practice. And you can click the link in the podcast notes. And if you do that, you get a 30-day trial. And that's a way to support this podcast. And so I thanks everyone for listening. The best way you can support this podcast really is just sending a text or an email to your friend with your favorite episode. And hopefully uh, people are enjoying it. And so far I've received some good feedback and I love doing it. So thanks so much for listening to The Intentional Clinician. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, licensed professional counselor. It's been my pleasure to record this podcast for you about trauma-informed counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids, which is debuting this year in 2019.